Today's scripture comes from the letter to the Hebrews. Let us hear now the word of God. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer and of their, their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I in the children whom God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself was tested by what he suffered. He is able to help those who are being tested. The word of the Lord. We're coming to the end of our series where we're exploring what does it mean to be the church. Uh, again, this year I'm trying to, the second half of this year, I'm trying to look a little bit through some kind of like basic theologies uh, where we're just doing short series and looking at different topics uh, and trying to understand what it means to worship, what it mean, means to be the church, what does it mean for us to encounter God daily in our kind of practices, what does it mean for us to love other people and to, to accomplish God's mission in the world. These are the things we're going to be looking at throughout the second half of this year. So this is the last in our series about what it means to be the church. And what, as we've been doing this, we've been focusing on analogies that God uses in Scripture to talk about the church or to talk even more broadly about God's people. Before Christianity was ever a thing, he had a people that he elected to himself, the Jewish people, and there were analogies that were used for them and that are still used for the church. So we've looked at three already. Uh, let's see, let's do a little test. Can you guys remember them? What was the first week? The first, first week? Temple. Good job. Phoebe gets an A-plus gold star. I have a, a big thing in my office, and every week I give each of you gold stars if you participated. So, <laughs> What was the second week? What did we look at the second week? Bride. Good job. Wow. Good. You guys, are, you guys are becoming embarrassed when you can't answer my questions. That's what's really happening here, and you don't want me to make fun of you anymore. So. Uh, the third week, which was actually, we had a little week break where we uh, had the Prue team lead a worship service for us, but what was the third week that we did? 
It was body. That was last week. So we're in the final week. In the final week, we're looking at another analogy that is often used in the New Testament in various different ways, and that is that we are the family of God, family of God. Now, when I say that, when I say the word family, I have to let you know this. There was no term specifically in the Greek language or even in the Hebrew language that referred to family the way we refer to family. Did you guys know that? I didn't either before this week, and I started researching this topic. There's no specific word. There were words that we often translate as family or that we kind of extrapolate and we see family in. Like oftentimes, we are called what in the faith? Brothers and sisters. Familial terms, terms that we understand. We know that that God's own relationship within the Trinity is father and son. Familial language, right? And yet, the word family is often not used. Instead, another word in the Greek is used that literally means household. Household. The household of God. Okay? And so when we look at this idea of family, I think one of the first things we have to begin to do is we have to begin to understand that our conceptions of family today are not the conceptions of family when Jesus and Paul and Peter and James were writing the New Testament or were teaching and preaching in Jesus' case. They didn't understand family the way that we understand family. And in fact, family has been a fluid thing throughout culture and human history for a very long time. This might be disillusioning for many members of you, because how many of you have heard at some point in the last 20 to 30 years that all the social ills and problems in our culture are due to the breakdown of the traditional family? Now, when we think of traditional family, what do we think of? We think of mother, father, and 2.5 kids or whatever, right? 2.1 kids. That's what we think of. And I think it's even better if the family all wears jean jackets together. (laughs) I just really like this picture of jean jacketed family. Now, we have this kind of idealized image of family in our minds, and it is a part of kind of our cultural zeitgeist, but many of us don't realize or recognize that our perceptions of the idealized family didn't exist really at all prior to about 100 to 125 years ago. So it is a relatively new phenomenon in Western culture to look at family the way that we all tend to idealize and look at family. Now, I also want to say this, that the idealized family, the quote-unquote traditional family that we often talk about as breaking down, is not actually at all what the norm has been even in the period of time where that has been the idealized family. Does that make sense to anybody? What I'm trying to say is that in every culture, there's always an idealized image of what the perfect family or household structure should be, but the reality of that within the normal everyday lives of the people within that culture usually don't reflect that idealized image. How many of you would describe your life as being perfectly idyllic? Okay, one, two, and I happen to know both of you are lying. (laughs) 
I know you two well enough. <laughs> You're just raising your hand for the sake of raising your hands. The ideal is something that we strive for. It's held out there as something that we imagine as being attainable or that we should guide or direct our lives. But hardly ever do we really experience any ideal within our own lives. Life is a lot messier than that, right? Yeah. So let me tell you this. In ancient days, we tend to think of the, the idea of family back then was the same day idea as family today, that it's a nuclear family with mother and father and then their kids, right? And the kinship between that nuclear family is what formed the ideal of the family. And that isn't what was the case back then. They had a different idealized family. But even their idealized family wasn't fully realized all the time. What was their idealized family? What was the, what they, they saw as the way to be family? Well, if you look at scriptures, you get some clues, okay? In our culture, the central relationship that holds a family together is often in the idyllic form, what? The husband and wife, the man and woman, the, the mother and the father, right? And so their relationship is the one that defines all the other relationships. How many of you have ever heard this before? As a mom and dad, you have to make sure your relationship are healthy because it's like putting on oxygen mask on a plane and then you help your kids. You got to help yourself first and make sure you're healthy in order to really be there for your kids. How many of you have heard that out of the mouth of a preacher or somebody in the past? Quite a few of you. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense. I live my life by that same ideal. And yet, the idealized family in the ancient times was not the exact same as that. And if you think about it, it just makes sense that it's not the exact same. We've already talked about the image of the church being the bride of Christ. And we've looked at how that calls us into this intimate relationship. But what do we know about ancient cultures and ancient times that we don't hold to today? that they were patriarchies. They were, they were cultures built upon a father or a grandfather who kind of ruled or dictated over their immediate family, right? So does it make sense to you that in those times, the relationship that would define all the rest of the family would be the male to the female relationship? No, just think about it in common sense. The female was subservient to the male, obedient to the male, right? And Christianity changed that. Nowhere do you see a, a real direct command of obedience of women. It's, it's respect, it's honor, right? There's, there's language in which there's an equality that's beginning to be put in to the relationship between men and women in the, in the gospel, but in their times, that's not how they would have seen it. And even though the marriage relationship of husband and wife was significant and very important for the family, it was not, as I've studied it, the relationship that defined all other relationships with the family. Can anybody guess what that might, relationship might be? Anybody? Yeah, up there. No. Good, good guess, though. Bravery, Anne. I love it. You all should answer your, raise your hands. Yeah, I just put a picture up. Gary, now it's cheating. Huh? Parent and child. But no, not just parent and child. Very specifically, father and their 
oldest son, their eldest, right? Because where in their culture, in their society, is the, the lineage to be passed in not only name, but inheritance and reputation and everything. It's between the father and their eldest son. And so that relationship, the father and the eldest son, is the relationship which really all the other relationships spun around and were defined by. Are your minds beginning to open up to the language of Scripture? Are they beginning to see things a different way? If you haven't made the connection yet, let me make it for you. God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. In the culture of their day, the significance of Jesus calling the Father his Father, the significance of the relationship being defined within the patriarchy, was stating that the relationship of all the human family was going to be defined by the relationship that we see here in the gospel between the father and the son. Did I just blow your minds? That blew my mind when I realized that many years ago. And it becomes important then that we begin to learn this. We get into talk about this, and then the language begins to be recaptured in our imagination. Otherwise, we can begin to become complacent, and we can begin to think, well, we're no longer in patriarchal times, and so we should change that language. We should no longer use father and son as a language for the Trinity. We should use some other language, but no other language explains this as well as father and son. We just have to give it some meaning and context, which we don't often do. But this is important language. It's also important language that the Bible over and over again refers to all of us as sons. Sons. Now, in our passage today, it has been modernized and watered down to where it just says children, and then it says daughters and sons, and that makes sense to our modern minds, but we begin to lose some historical context when we remove the original term of sons. Listen, this is radical. This is radical theology that was being created in the times of patriarchy. Women who were demeaned and put lower than all others in Christianity and Christ were being adopted as sons. Amazing. Freedom, equality, grace, mercy, mutual submission. Qualities that stem from the relationship of the ultimate father and son, the firstborn of all things. The Bible carries so much deepness that we often neglect and ignore. If you're wondering whether or not what I'm saying is true, let us go back. Let us remember some father-son relationships in which define the entire story of the salvation of God through the people of the Hebrews. The first man, the man first called by God to be the people was who? Abraham. And Abraham, or Abram at the time, was given a promise by God. And what was that promise? That he would have a son. 
A son that would be his own flesh and blood that might be able to inherit his possessions and carry his name and his lineage into the future. A son for Abraham. And yet they got older, Abram and Sarah got older, and they didn't have kids, and they got older, and they didn't have kids, and all of a sudden they're in their 90s, and they're like, there's no way we can have kids anymore. And God promises them, says, no, I'm still going to have, you, you have kids, and they think, well, maybe we need to take it under our own hands. And so Sarah gives Abraham, is her, her husband, her handmaiden to have an heir and a son, because they think maybe that's what God's calling us to do, to take it into our own hands. And so they do it that way, and they have a baby, Ishmael. But does God bless that son, the firstborn son, the eldest son, as the son of the promise and the covenant? No. Because God planned and made sure that there would be no way for humanity to thwart his plans and that his sovereignty would reign over this. He chose not the firstborn, but the secondborn, the child of the promise usurping the rules of humanity of the time. And then we go to the next story. We go to the next story of, of uh, Isaac and his two sons. He has two sons. One of them comes out a little earlier, and his name is Esau. So Esau is the one who rightfully has the birthright and the inheritance of the family of Isaac, and he is the one to carry the inheritance and the name forward for Isaac. But what happens when Esau and Jacob are born? God proclaims it will not be the older who receives the birthright, but the younger. Once again, usurping the way of the human culture of the time and saying, not their will, but my will. And so it is Jacob who, in a, in a very deceptive way with his mom later, tricks Isaac in his elder age to pass the birthright on to Jacob. Have you ever wondered why Isaac doesn't just reverse the decision? He's the patriarch. He could do whatever he wants. But I think Isaac recognizes in that moment that that God was right and he was wrong. And God used even deceptive means to bring about what he had prophesied in the beginning rather than what Isaac had hoped, which was the human understanding. And so Jacob becomes the progenitor for all of the people of Israel. His name becomes Israel, and his 12 sons become the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so an entire people group that is, exists until today even came from Jacob, the one who stole the birthright. We begin to see how important this male relationship between father and son is as we begin to understand in the scriptures the idea of the kinsman redeemer. How many of you have ever heard of this concept before, the kinsman redeemer? The kinsman redeemer was somebody who was allowed to rescue or save the inheritance of a relative of theirs if that inheritance had somehow been compromised. Now, let's say somebody got themselves in a ton of debt, and the only way they can get their way out of it was they sold all of their property. Well, a brother or a cousin or somebody else who was closest in line as akin to them could redeem their property by going and buying it from the one that they leveraged it to. 
Therefore, maintaining the family inheritance, the land in the name to be within the land for that relative kinsman redeemer. Now you guys might have heard of this before or known this through the idea of what if a man cannot produce a male heir and they die? What happens then? Well, the the wife would be given to who? His brother. So that the brother might produce an heir, not for himself, not that it might be a part of his birthright passing down, but it would be his brother's name that would come into this child's life and be a part of them. And so we see an entire story, an entire book in the Bible. We're going to look at this next year before Advent in 2020, the book of Ruth, where Ruth and Naomi and and come from another land. Naomi was brought there by her husband. She was uh, a Hebrew, and she had sons with her husband, but her husband and her sons all died, and Naomi was uh, one of the wives of her sons. And she released them back to their families and said, you can go back to your families. And yet Ruth, Ruth did not want to leave Naomi. She said, faithful, listen to this, a heathen, not a people, not a person from the people of God, a person from a foreign country is the one who stays obedient to God and being faithful to Naomi. And so she says, I'm going to stick with you. And they go back, back to Israel and they begin to glean off of a farm. And they find out that the owner of the farm is a distant relative of Naomi's husband who passed. And so he's capable of becoming a kinsman redeemer, a kinsman redeemer for the lineage that was lost when all the male line had died in that family. And eventually he, be, he marries Ruth and he takes on the role of being the kinsman redeemer. This is Boaz in this picture here. And he takes on the role of replacing the lineage of those who were lost so that their name would stick. Now, let me tell you this. This is the grandmother and grandfather of King David, the progenitor of Jesus. You see how God has used these human assumptions, these human cultures, in order to begin to show us the greatness and the grandness of his love as he planned to bring all of humanity in as sons, as adopted heirs to the kingdom, so that we might rule with him for all eternity over creation. The story is there if you follow it. And all of it, all of it is reflective of the relationship within the Trinity itself. This is a picture, a famous, famous icon called Rublev's Trinity. It is a depiction of the three angels who visit Abraham and Sarah and prophecy about the birth of Isaac. And then they also go and visit Lot. And then they are the ones who call down destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And these three angels by Rublev are depicted as the Trinity. In the middle, you have the Father. On the, uh, your left-hand side, you have the Son. And on your right-hand side, you have the Holy Spirit. Now notice, what is the, the disposition of those three towards each other? What are they doing? Bowing. Bowing to one another in what you might call mutual submission and respect. 
And in fact, that's what we see in the Trinity, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see three who are continually giving of themselves to one another, perfectly 100% unified in, in, in substance and in will. And yet, in their personhood, they are subjected to one another, giving of themselves to one another. The image of what humans are supposed to be, because we are created in the image of God. So we are supposed to surrender to one another, to submit to one another, to give of ourselves to one another that each other might be made fulfilled through that giving. That's the design. And then we ultimately see that the relationship is called father and son. And that relationship is defined by a son's absolute absolute and perfect and pure submission and surrender and trust in the Father. So much so, as our Hebrews passage says, that he goes all the way to the point of suffering for us. Suffering for us because we are his brothers. Because he's become bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Because he became human. And in his direct obedience to the Father, he says yes to the Father where we say no. And the result of his yes to the Father is that we nailed him to a cross and he suffered for you and for me. So that our suffering would not be pointless, but so that our suffering would be made into something new, something beautiful, something redemptive, something creative in a relationship that defines all of our relationships. The last 24 hours, we saw two shootings. Two shootings with tremendous casualties. Suffering like that seems so senseless, so ugly, so heinous, that it fills our hearts with sadness and mourning, and we don't know what to do with it. And yet, this table, this table shows us that God has already done something with it. He's taken the evil and suffering that has resulted from our rebellion and he's turned it into redemption. And he promises that he's going to redeem all things in the end through Jesus. Recreating it in his image and in his will so that his will will be on earth like it is in heaven. And so it's apt that today we come to this table as sons of the Father, cemented in our relationship with him through suffering, represented in a table of suffering so that we might become people of suffering, so that we might take the world's suffering like Jesus did and make it something beautiful and redemptive. Come, come to this table 
as sons of the Father, inheritors of the kingdom, and conquerors over sin and death. Let us pray. Be sons of Jesus Christ, be, or be sons of God the Father, brothers of Jesus Christ in this world, that you might display the same love of the Father and the Son to all you come in contact with. Go and be his sons in the kingdom. And now, as a son, be blessed with all the inheritance of the kingdom. That means all the power, all the strength. Jesus said, you will do greater things than I. And be his people in this world. Amen.